Good morning. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and I'm going to bring you Wild Oak Living right now from 9 to 10. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. It's all about building sustainable community in Mendocino County and beyond. Um, this program has been on the air for a little more than 20 years and has covered pretty much any topic is even loosely associated with sustainability. Today I'm going to cover, I'm going to return to a topic that I have covered repeatedly from different perspectives. And that is, and, and this is going to sound really strange now because we're in the, in the middle of probably one of the worst, most intense heat waves, um, that this, uh, area has ever seen. But I'm going to be talking about rainwater harvesting and also about sun and shade harvesting. And the reason I'm going to be doing that, even though winter is a few months off, is exactly that. That's exactly the reason I'm doing that is because, because winter is a few months off and we have a little bit of time now to think about, uh, how we want to deal with the precious rainwater that universe willing is hopefully going to come our way again this winter. Um, and, uh, with the, with the drought that we've been in for, for many years now, um, off and on, um, this topic is also, I think, uh, one that's becoming more and more important. And there are many aspects to the idea of how to harvest rainwater responsibly, appropriately, in a way that makes it, uh, you know, health, healthy to use, safe to use. And, um, the person I'm, I am I'm inviting, I have invited in the past and that's going to speak to us today about this topic is Brad Lancaster. And Brad Lancaster has uh, written two books about harvesting rainwater for dry lands and beyond. He is pr probably one of the premier uh, experts in this field. He has a website that I would highly encourage you to check out because he, there's so much information and so many free resources on that website, in addition to his books, which are very comprehensive uh, discussion of the topic with many examples and many hands-on instructions. But the website that you can go to for resources is harvestingrainwater.com, harvestingrainwater, all one word, dot com. And today I'm going to um, share with you an interview that I did with uh, Brad Lanquest, Lancaster actually a few years ago, but I listened to it again a couple of days ago and decided that it, the topic is, is as topical and as current as ever. And so I'm going to share an excerpt from that interview with you because in it he uh, Brad Lancaster talks about why we want to harvest rainwater, and he also goes a little bit into the how we to harvest rainwater. Although, it, uh, as I said earlier, if you want more details and hands-on examples, and also videos uh, and other free resources, and also the books that Brad Lancaster wrote, uh, I would encourage you to go to harvestingrainwater.com. And as I said earlier. To after after this interview with Brad Lancaster, I'm going to talk a little bit about a topic he's been developing more recently, and that's called sun and shade harvesting. And I'll explain about that when we come back. And then, time permitting, depending on how f how far these um, uh, uh, we are into the hour by then, I might share some information 
about the myth of normal. And I'm going to return to the topic of gratefulness. Um, the, two weeks ago, I, I played a little video by Brother Steinl Rust about gratefulness, and I got so many positive responses that I decided, that especially since September 21st is the uh, uh, Gratefulness Day, um, I'm going to share a little bit more uh, uh, thoughts and um some audio uh, about gratefulness uh, towards the end of the hour. And if we have time, also, I might open the phone lines and invite you to share a bit about how you are faring during this heat wave. I think that's also something something good that we could talk about, um, because I think this has been challenging to many of us. But right now, let's go and hear about rainwater harvesting from Brad Lancaster. And here we go. Welcome to Wild Oak Living, Brad Lancaster. Thank you so much for being on our program today. Thank you. I invited you to be on the program because you have a new book out in, in your series about rainwater harvesting. Your series of books called Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond. We had you on Wild Oak Living a couple of years ago when your volume one, uh, The Guiding Principles, came out. And now volume two is out, Water Harvesting Earthworks. And I'm so jazzed that this book is finally out because I know the information in there is going to be really important for a lot of our listeners so thank you again for being on. So let's let's perhaps, uh, Brad, set the stage by talking about rainwater harvest in general and then get into some of the material that you cover in your first book and then what you're doing in your, in your new book. Why, sure. why harvest rainwater? Why is that important or why is that useful? <laughs> well, uh, rainwater is our highest quality um, source of water for irrigating a vegetation, be it crops or just native vegetation, uh, because it uh, will leach the salts out of the root zone of the plants, um, whereas if we irrigate with groundwater or surface water, we typically add salts, which is a problem in um, the alkaline-soiled western United States. Uh, and uh, it also is a free fertilizer, because um, during electrical storms, uh, a chemical reaction occurs with the lightning that converts atmospheric nitrogen which is a form of nitrogen that plants cannot use, it converts it into a form of nitrogen that plants can use, and the raindrops then bring that nitrogen right to the plants. Um, and uh, if you want to use rainwater for drinking or bathing or other uses, if we can look to this free source of water that comes to us free from the sky, we can greatly reduce our energy consumption because we don't need to be uh, as reliant upon uh, pumps uh, and miles and miles of pipe to distribute that water. It, it just comes to us naturally. Um, and uh, if we are able to use our on-site water resources as opposed to bringing water from elsewhere, uh, then we can more easily live in balance with our local water budget and we can enhance things on our own site while at the same time enhancing the conditions for those downstream. How did you get into this whole subject of rainwater harvest? What, what interests you about it, and what motivated you to write books about it? Well, uh, I've grown up in the desert community of Tucson, Arizona, um, a desert city that receives about 12 inches of rain a year and has about a million residents. Um, and uh, as I grew up here, I just saw the water situation 
steadily worsen over time rather than improve. We lost two rivers, uh, um, the springs and artesian wells that used to be in the valley have all died up, and our water table has dropped over 300 feet and continues to drop a rate of four feet per year, which has caused our whole community to actually sink or subside. Um, and uh, I didn't want to be a part of this problem. Uh, I actually wanted to run. I wanted to leave. Um, but as I got into water harvesting and uh, learned more and more about it and started practicing and uh, learned from su both successes and mistakes, I saw that this was a very real way uh, to become part of the solution rather than the problem. And uh, um, so my goal is to show in my own life and then to inspire others uh, how we can improve our own sites and improve the community simultaneously. And if we can get a critical mass of this, we can start to enhance our water resources rather than degrade them on a community scale as well. And do you, is this, um, I mean, I know you've written books about this subject, but is this something that you do in your own business as well? Do you, do you consult on this topic? Yeah, I sure do. Um, I've been uh, teaching, consulting, uh, and doing design work since 1993. Um, uh, not, not only in water harvesting, but also uh, integrated sustainable systems. So is this is this somehow in the context of permaculture, or I know you don't, yeah, don't use absolutely. that word. Yeah, uh -huh. Yeah. And uh, what I love about permaculture is the whole idea of integration. And uh, so when I talk about water harvesting, I'm talking about uh, many types of, of water harvesting. So it would be the harvest of rainwater, uh, which we can do by either taking roof runoff and storing it in tanks. Uh, that's the ideal strategy for capturing water if we want to bathe with it, drink with it, or wash with it, have it readily on hand. Uh, or the other strategy is to harvest that water in earthworks, which are just bowl-like shapes in the landscape that are mulched and vegetated that infiltrate the water very quickly use the living pumps of vegetation to access that water. So you use it in the form of a windbreak, uh, wildlife habitat, food production like fruit trees, uh, passively cooling shade in the summer, and so on. Um, so those are uh, two of the primary ways of harvesting uh, rainwater and runoff from the roof. But uh, we can also use those strategies, particularly earthworks, to harvest stormwater, which would be the water off streets that's somewhat uh, contaminated. Um, we can use the earthworks as well to harvest gray water, which would be the water from household drains, such as the bathtub, washing machine, and sink. Uh, and we can send air conditioning condensate to these same areas. Um, so the idea is to create strategies that can utilize multiple sources of water, primarily on-site water resources, so we can get by. We can do a lot more with a lot less. One of the questions, and I'd like to talk specifically about, you know, various strategies for, as you said, for collecting rainwater from your buildings as well as from collecting them uh, on the ground. But before we get into the specifics of talking about that, um, one of the things that people say when you talk about rainwater harvesting is, well, by by capturing that rainwater and um, and directing it to use, uh, aren't we then keeping this rainwater from going into the ground and recharging aquifers and recharging springs and wells? Mm. Well, uh, it depends on how you're doing it and at what scale. Uh, 
So uh, let's say you build a home on a plot of land that was not previously built upon. Um, you are going to radically change the hydrology uh, where you build the building. Uh, because prior to building, that site used to uh, infiltrate the direct rainfall and uh, did not generate as much runoff. Once you build a site with an impervious roof and perhaps impervious driveway or patios as well, you are now increasing the amount of runoff over what existed before, um, which could contribute and uh, very often does contribute to downstream flooding. Um, and increases the problem over how it used to be. So um, if you were to harvest this extra runoff that was generated, and if you were to keep it on site rather than draining it off site, um, you would not be robbing any water from those downstream because you would just be uh, harnessing and harvesting the, uh, the runoff that was generated through the building while at the same time you would be reducing flooding threats and uh, negative sediment loads downstream. Uh, in addition, uh, if you are harvesting this water with water harvesting earthworks where you use the soil as your tank, um, you are actually increasing the amount of water that is recharged to the local water tables and so on. Because instead, uh, of because instead of running off across the soil, it's now soaking into the soil and, and, and eventually makes its way down to the aquifers underneath the soil, right? Correct. And uh, you're losing far less of that water to evaporation. Mm -hmm. And this is what leads to more consistent perennial water flow in our rivers and more consistent levels in, uh, in our wells and so on because uh, it's not the peak flood flows that sustain year-round flow. It's the water slowly seeping out of the soil throughout the year and into the dry seasons that keeps that water flowing year-round. One of the things that uh, we are here in Northern California and one of the things that we are so used to seeing is um, drainages and, and uh, riverbeds and creek beds that carry a lot of water after each of the big rains that we get here during the winter season between October and May. Uh, and a lot of runoff water, mostly with a lot of silt in it, brown, opaque kind of water. Uh, and then, you know, after, after a rain for a few days, you see that water. Then it subsides again, and then the next rain, it starts up again. And then in the spring, it slowly peters out, and then for about six months, it, all those beds run dry, usually unless, you know, you have a spring somewhere that stays, stays active year-round. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've always thought, well, a lot of water goes down those, those drainages and those creek and riverbeds, and that has to, be the way, it has to be that way because somehow that water is needed in the rivers downstream and is needed, you know, eventually in the ocean. But what I've learned from you when we did our interview about your first book a, few, a, few, a couple of years back is that as you just explained, it's not really how much flash runoff you get in the winter, but how much water year-round um, flows and how you can actually, through the right rainwater harvesting techniques, turn these ephemeral streams that only run in the winter into year-round streams. And you talked about an example of a ranch, a very large ranch, I believe it's in Arizona, 
that had some huge successes doing that. I'm wondering if you could reiterate that a bit. Sure. Um, it's the El Coronado Ranch in southeastern Arizona where um, they can get 18 to 22 inches of rain a year. And uh, on this ranch, they, uh, uh, the couple that purchased it uh, wanted to continue ranching, but they wondered aloud what would the cattle eat if they were to ranch it because it had been so overgrazed in the past and the soil so eroded. Um, in many spots, there was just bare bedrock. And uh, they had um, two large watersheds on the property where the creeks would flow during the monsoon rains, um, but then they would dry out uh, after the rains. And uh, they decided to better manage the land by practicing holistic management, rotational grazing, um, and also creating simple uh, loose rock check dams within the drainages. The idea there being to slow the flow of the water through the system, uh, not stop it, just slow it, uh, and give the water more opportunity to infiltrate the soil and increase the water-soil contact area. And they put in over 20,000 of these low check dams, um, most no taller than two feet tall, and all built by hand. Um, and they ran perpendicular or across the drainages, uh, like speed humps in the water flow. Uh, but they were porous, so water could continue to move through, through them. And after they put in all these 20,000 small check dams, starting at the top of their watershed, working all the way down to the bottom, they uh, found that the uh, water flows increased in their creeks. Uh, one of them has become a year-round flow, and the other went from just flowing three months a year to now flowing at least eight months a year and oftentimes throughout the whole year. Um, and uh, so the whole idea here was just by slowing that flow of water, infiltrating more to the soil, there was more water banked in the soil in the dry seasons that would slowly be released to keep that water flowing year-round. When you first told us the story, you also told us that the neighbors of this couple who, who purchased this ranch, when they, when they saw them st starting to do that, were really worried that they would end up with less water downstream uh, and that their ponds and that uh, would, would go dry because, you know, now, this, now these people at the top of the watershed were taking, quote-unquote, all the water. But that's not what happened, is it? No, actually what happened is uh, um, the ponds below uh, took a little longer to fill, but once filled, they maintained their, their level um, and uh, had far more consistent water levels than they'd had in the past. In addition, uh, everyone's wells downstream of the ranch found that their well levels went up. Um, and this is because the, through the management of the ranch, they were putting more water into the soil than they were taking out, or putting more water into the watershed than was being removed from the watershed. Yeah, because water that otherwise would have just flown, flown off into, in a flash flood and, and not been available anymore. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to add, um, in researching the second book, I went to India, and there in Rajasthan, the most populated desert of the world, um, 
came across many instances where water harvesting had done similar beneficial effects. Uh, for example, in the Alwar district of Rajasthan, um, the over 850 villages and their inhabitants had killed five rivers by uh, over-grazing, deforesting the watershed, and uh, over-pumping the water. And uh, they all banded together and with a massive effort uh, reforested much of their watershed, um, changed their grazing practices, uh, and started incorporating many earthworks in the villages and the watersheds of the villages. And uh, in a little over 10 years, they actually brought all five rivers back to life. Wow. And the idea again was to create and enhance the living sponge of the watershed where the vegetation, the organic matter, the soil absorbs the bulk of the water and then slowly releases it instead of having, say, just a bare earth sheet that just drains everything off, not only water but also topsoil and fertility. So in effect you're using the soil as underground water storage. Correct. Yeah. That is, that is a fascinating concept and that I'd never thought about before until I read your book. Well, and, and for anyone doing this, particularly on the household scale, um, you're, depending on the local geology, you could be directly infusing your aquifer with water, but in some areas where the aquifer is much deeper, that probably is not going to be the case directly. Rather, it will be indirectly. For example, if you set up a landscape that is able to harvest water passively and freely when it does rain and hold on to it longer into the periods of time when it does not rain, you will be able to greatly reduce or even eliminate your need to pump water from the aquifer in the dry season. I want to talk about more examples and, and how to do that in a moment. First, I'd like to tell our listeners, you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on KZYX and Z listener-supported community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. My guest is Brad Lancaster, and we are talking about, well, we're talking about water harvesting, but specifically we are talking about your newest book called Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volume 2, Water Harvesting Earthworks. Um, I'd like to invite you now to Talk a bit about what your two books cover, and specifically, since we've already done a program about your first book, specifically, how is your second book different from your first book? Okay. Well, the first book is meant as um, the, the foundation of the three-book series. Uh, it's an introduction to what water harvesting is about, um, how do you want to do it via tanks or earthworks or a combination, it shows you how to fully assess your site and your on-site water resources so you can get them, uh, you can get your water consumption in balance with your water income. And then it gives you a whole chapter on integrated design. So how can you set up your water harvesting earthworks and or cisterns so that they help to uh, passively shade and cool you in the summer but maintain solar gain in the winter for free heat maximize food production, erosion control, and so on. Where um, Volume 2 uh, takes us is it follows on the foundation of Volume 1 and goes into far more detail with step-by-step -step instructions of how you implement various water harvesting earthworks. 
with the primary focus being on harvesting rain within these earthworks and stormwater, but I also have a chapter on how you use these can use these same earthworks to also harvest gray water. Let's perhaps get into some of these techniques for, for harvesting rainwater. And perhaps, I guess, the two most useful examples for our listeners would be perhaps those of us with, with acreage who have abundant water in the winter but not much water in the summer. How can we take advantage of rainwater? And also, if, if you live in town and you have a, a small lot, you know, that's maybe next to a street with a stormwater runoff drainage, etc. So maybe we can give some examples for both of those environments. Sure. Um, why don't I start on the small scale and move up from there? Okay. Um, so, uh, and I'll, I'll focus uh, primarily on, on the earthworks, although tanks could certainly be incorporated as well. So um, around one's home, you want to ensure that water drains away from the house, not towards it, so that you ideally have at least a 10-foot buffer from the edge of your home to any earthwork where you might begin to infiltrate water. And if you have a relatively flat site, you could create uh, infiltration basins, uh, which are basically just shallow, level-bottomed basins that are well mulched and vegetated, and you have the general area around these basins sloped towards the basins, so they collect direct rainfall and runoff. Once you've planted these basins, then they become known as rain gardens, because they're collecting the rain and using the rain as the sole irrigator. As Now, the next piece is you're going to have to determine what vegetation you're going to put into uh, these basins and around the basins. And to answer that, you simply take a hike. You go out into the areas uh, around you that are uh, healthy, relatively intact ecosystems and see what vegetation likes to grow in the low spots, periodically inundated with water and sediment. Those are the ve that's the vegetation you place within the bottom of your earthworks. Um, and then you see what is the vegetation that prefers better drainage um, but might grow near one of these low spots. Uh, that vegetation you could plant beside the basin but not in it. So the base of the plant, the root crown, stays high and dry and there's no rot, but the roots can access the water. You could use the same approach with fruit trees or um, other food-bearing uh, exotics. Um, if you're on a sloped site, what you would want to do uh, perhaps is uh, in the high use areas you may want to create a series of uh, terraces or level terraces that will more readily infiltrate the water in which you can plant um, in low use areas terraces don't really make sense They're, it's too much work um, but uh, what you can do on gradual slopes is contour Berman Basin uh, where you go perpendicular to the slope or across the slope with a basin and a berm, kind of like a speed hump that will slow down the flow. And uh, with all these strategies, you ideally want to start at the very top and then work down. The top in, your, in a flat home site may be the roof of the home. Uh, on a slope site, be the upper part of the slope. Um, and uh, I would stress, a home location, uh, if 
you're going to plant trees with these earthworks that you stress the tree planting on the east, west, and north side of the structure, but not the south side. That way you can shade the structure from the rising and setting sun in summer, which rises and sets to the north of due east and west, and uh, you leave the south side open for the free heat and light in the winter months. So uh, these earthworks would be relatively small um, on a home site. If you're on more of a rural site uh, and practicing agriculture and whatnot, let's say you have uh, an orchard and it's on a very gradual slope, uh, you could put in what are called boomerang berms is basically a horseshoe-shaped berm where the berm is on the downslope side. There's no berm on the upslope side. So it creates this open-armed hug of earth that's welcoming the rain running down from the slope above and collecting it behind the berm. Um, you would make this berm wider or beyond the drip edge of the fruit tree because the root, you're trying to encourage the roots to expand and grow out rather than just clustering root growth at the very base of the tree. Um, you, particularly in uh, and you would do this you for each. Are, you would um, do this for each like, tree? likely want to consider uh, some ponds uh, on the larger acreage site. Um, the, in my climate, um, ponds are far less of a beneficial strategy because our potential rate of water loss to evaporation is much greater. Um, but uh, your evaporation rate is lower and you have much more winter rains than we do. So in order to capture that large volume of water, um, ponds could definitely make sense. Um, and it's far cheaper to create, say, a 100,000 gallon uh, pond than it is to build or buy a hundred thousand gallon rainwater tank. Mm -hmm. And um, if and if you put it in a shaded area, then perhaps it won't evaporate so quickly. Exactly. And one uh, thing I've also learned is the deeper the pond, it doesn't necessarily have to be huge in diameter, but the deeper the pond, the cooler the water stays, and the less quickly it evaporates. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. And uh, usually, uh, ponds will be located uh, within or beside a natural drainage way. And uh, so they will also be benefiting from natural uh, cold air drainage, which keeps, as the shade would, the temperature of the water lower and thereby reducing the rate of evaporation. And uh, one other thing I wanted folks to think about, be it people in a more urban or suburban neighborhood or in the rural areas, is that uh, I think we should really look at our roads as potential water sources and start to manage them in a way that we beneficially use that runoff rather than negatively cast it off. In my neighborhood in Tucson, where we just get 12 inches of rain a year, the average neighborhood street drains over a million gallons of runoff per mile per year. That's just the rain falling on the street. And that is enough water to sustain um, four hundred trees per mile, or one uh, native tree on both sides of the street every 25 feet. So um, we could create the sh shade canopy over the street, irrigated entirely with the runoff from the street. In central and northern California, there's going to be 
even more water available because you have higher rainfall. So let me just give you a simple little thing. For, uh, for every inch of rain, a 10-foot-wide paved street will drain over 27,000 gallons of runoff per mile. Okay? That's for every inch of rainfall on a 10-foot-wide street. For those of you that wrote that down, you can look at your local rainfall and multiply that figure by that, and you can also increase the width of your street if your street is wider. So um, rather than just casting the contaminated water right off the streets into our creeks, we could instead direct that into native plantings or perennial food-bearing plantings like fruit trees where the fruit does not come in contact with the toxins from the street. Rather, that's bioremediated in the soil, uh, and then the fruit uh, is benefited by the additional water. Use the soil as a filter, in effect. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And this way, when you mentioned earlier, when you see these big flood flows after the rains and how sediment-laden the water is, this will greatly reduce the sediment uh, in the waterways. And that is very important for the po uh, health of the fish population, um, particularly those that still have salmon in their creeks, because the, higher, um, the more silt that there is in the water, uh, the more harm can be done to, to the fish. Um, you know, the eggs can be covered up and whatnot. And in addition, if we can get more vegetation growing, particularly along our waterways and systems that feed our waterways, we keep the temperature of the water lower. And many fish deaths occur from excessively high water temperatures. When the water flows on paved streets or the pavement, it heats up, um, and it lacks the shade that can cool it down. So uh, there's many benefits that start to arise when you start to do these strategies. You've been listening to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak, and what we've just been listening to for the last half hour or so is an interview that I did actually a few years ago with Brad Lancaster, who is the author of two books on rainwater harvesting, which is a topic we've been talking about, uh, rainwater harvesting uh, for dry lands and beyond, volume one and volume two. I still can, I mean, there's a lot of books and a lot of resources now, and, and, you, can, and you can even find a lot of free resources on Brad Lancaster. Lancaster's website, but I still consider those two books sort of the, the ultimate guide on the topic of rainwater harvesting. And you can find information about those books at Brad Lancaster's website, which is harvestingrainwater.com, harvestingrainwater, all one word, dot com, uh, and also uh, a lot of uh, other resources. He also discusses a, a topic um, in that is sort of complementary to the whole topic of rainwater harvesting, and that is uh, sun and shade harvesting. And I was planning to share some information about that uh, during the program today, but I just uh, I just decided that I really want to invite Brad Lancaster to, to come and join us and talk to, to that about that topic, the whole topic of passively and actively harvesting sun and shade it's a it's a big topic and it's an important topic and so i'm going to make that a topic of a future program if you would like to check it out though you can find information about that also at harvestingrainwater.com and as i said at the beginning of the program 
today. The reason I'm bringing this today in the middle of one of the worst heat waves our area has ever seen, maybe the worst so far, um, is because uh, we have a couple of months time until the next rains, universe willing, will arrive. And um, that gives us some time to look at our landscapes, to look at the area around our houses, our homes, and, and our lands, and our cities, and our streets, and think about how do we want to employ some of the principles of rainwater harvesting that Brad Lancaster has just discussed in the interview we just heard to deal with the fact that not only are we experiencing a lot of heat, but we're also experiencing drought and they sort of go, those two sort of go together. But um, we're also seeing uh, a lot of areas being inundated by rain and floods. And so the, the whole idea of not only harvesting rainwater, but also preventing um, floods when they do occur and preventing sediment runoffs in our rivers is a really important one. So I would encourage everyone to check out the topic of rainwater harvesting and check out the information at rainwaterharvesting.com. One of the things that Brad Lancaster didn't mention in his interview uh, today, but that is important to consider that silt that runs off when we get, when our rivers and creeks are swollen with runoff and, and all the sediments and the water looks kind of brown. Um, that's fertility. That's the fertility that runs off of the lands that could be growing food or could be growing other vegetation, shade, shade giving vegetation and, and water preserving vegetation. But that fertility runs off if we don't have the right strategies in place to keep that silt from getting into our streams. So the whole topic of how to, how to build and maintain our roads to prevent that kind of silt runoff is, is a related and also very important topic. And I'm going to cover that also again at uh, at a future program. There's also some really uh, good things happening in our county and beyond in in the area of uh, road building and road maintenance and and uh, run a sediment uh, prevention. And uh, <clears throat> I'll bring you more information about that in the future. Right now, I'd like to take a few minutes. I'm going to end the program today with another little segment on gratefulness, but we have a little bit of time. And uh, I would like to open the phone lines and create a little bit of a, a, a sharing container. If you would like to share how you are dealing with this heat, how are you staying safe in this heat? Uh, do you have some tips to share with the rest of us? Do you have some challenges? Do you have some questions that, that uh, others in our community might be able to answer? I'm going to open up the phone lines if you'd like to call in about that topic. The number to call here in this, in the studio in Ukiah is 707-895 2448. That's 707 895 2448. If you would like to talk about how you are dealing with this heat wave, one of the things that makes this heat wave so dangerous is its persistence. You know, if we have one or two or maybe even three days of, of, of high heat, um, one or two days, you know, you can usually deal with, especially if you take measures to stay safe and to stay out of the sun and out of the heat. If you have uh, the opportunity to be in an air conditioned or cooled or shady space, if you if you drink enough fluids, if you if you avoid strenuous activity during the day, um, not everybody is able to do that, and so some of us are are more at risk than others, and especially if you have to work outside. 
um, although there is now a movement underway to create laws that uh, make it mandatory to provide shade breaks, to provide air-conditioned spaces to have breaks in, to provide plenty of uh, good drinking water. I recently saw a video online that uh, some grape growers in Spain have now started harvesting at night. So you have this this army of people going through vineyards with their headlamps on, uh, harvesting grapes at night because it's just simply too hot during the day to harvest. As as one of the vineyards there said, we would fry if we tried to harvest during the day. And so now they're harvesting at night with headlamps on. So that's one of the one of the adaptations. But what I was starting to say earlier, the challenge really becomes uh, dangerous when we have, you know, three or four or five days like in this in this current heat wave, and when the nights don't really get cool anymore. One of the saving graces uh, in our geographic area, at least in the past, has been that yes, it gets very hot during the day, but as of about you know. Six o'clock or seven o'clock or so, it starts to cool down, and then the nights are fairly cool, and our body can recover, and also we can get some sleep. It, it turns out that in order to sleep or to fall asleep, it's really helpful for our body temperature to go down by a couple of degrees. Um, and that's sort of the signal to our body, okay, it's time to go to sleep. When that can't happen because the room we are sleeping in is too hot, or at least we feel like it's too hot uh, compared to the way it was before when we had the cold nights, um, then falling asleep and staying asleep can become a challenge. Um, and And our body just simply cannot recover at night from the heat during the day and then this kind of heat exhaustion that can develop can build and build and build and 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 reach dangerous levels um and and just to reiterate uh, by the way i would encourage you to call in uh, please do call in and share with us how you're faring in this heat wave do you have some discoveries that you made that that are helpful to you that you can share with our community uh, do you have some challenges that you'd like some help with? Give us a call, 895-2448-707-895-2448. This is Johanna Wilduck, and this is Wild Oak Living coming to you every other Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. It's all about building sustainable community in Mendocino County and beyond. I just want to reiterate some of the some of the things that uh, you know most of us know by now because we're becoming unfortunately experienced at this heat wave things. Um, but obvious some of the obvious things um, you know to avoid exertion during the hot part of the day to try to do your work in the mornings and in the evenings. And we have a phone call, so let's see. Let's see if we can get this to work. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Duck Living. Hey, how's it going? This is Dan from Philo. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we harvest our grapes at Navarro at night already, all over the valley, because when we process the grapes, we want them to be cool. So if we were to pick them at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, the grapes would be warm. So we're already harvesting our grapes. At nighttime, what we do is we process our grapes during the daytime, and there's no getting around that. That is so fascinating. I'm so glad you're calling in to let us know. I mean, that's that's what this community radio thing is all about, right? I had no idea because I don't live in Anderson Valley, so I don't. So, so do you do you go out with headlamps, or how do you do that? 
Um, yeah, everyone has their own personal headlamps, and then we have a tractor that tows a big, tall, portable light. And then we can also rent portable uh, generators that have light uh, affixed to them on a big mast, and you raise it up, and then it'll give you uh, light as well. And how are people taking to harvesting at night? <clears throat> um, it's, I've been at Navarro Vineyards for 11 years. This is my 12th harvest, and we've always harvested at night. Wow, I did not know that. I am so glad you're educating us about this. So this is not just a, a recent developing thing in the response to the heat wave. Um, no, as, as far as I know, I can't speak for any other vineyards, but um, we we always harvest our grapes uh, at night. And if for some reason it goes into the light hours and the grapes get too warm, we'll stop harvesting and wait until tomorrow or tonight. <laughs> So this also has has to do not just with the with the safety and comfort of the worker, but also with with how you're processing grapes and and not having to cool them down, right? Yes, I'm not I'm not saying that we don't take into consideration our employees as well, but the main reason why we harvest at nighttime is so we have nice cold berries to process. Yeah, and that that improves the quality of the wine, and is that the main reason? Um. You know, I'm not a winemaker. I haven't gone to UC Davis, but uh, I want to say that uh, the juice stabilizes quicker before uh, when it's cold. I'm not very sure because I I do know that once we press off um, white grapes, we'll let it go into a tank and sit, and uh, those are refrigerated tanks, you know. So uh, I can't give you the nomenclature as far as uh, why but I just know that we do, and we've been doing it for probably the past 20, 25 years here. It probably saves some energy, too, I would I would presume, if you don't have to cool them down with machines. Um, yes, yes, right, but then we still have to use the energy to keep the grape juice cold until it gets inoculated. Yeah. And then even after it's been inoculated, if um, the the uh, juice gets too warm in the fermentation process, then we turn on the refrigeration in the tank and we can cool it down and retard the fermentation. Well, I'm so glad you called in to educate us about this. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Duck Living. Can you please turn off your radio? Uh, yes, the radio is off. Hi, uh, Johanna. This is uh, John Canan. I'm the Wood, woodworker. I teach uh, wood shop at uh, the Waldorf School. Yes. And uh, last year it was 106 on the first day of school. I think it was more like 110 this year. But I was a little more cautious this year because last year, uh, you know, we were wearing our N95 masks and. Uh, you know, I made it through the first period, uh, but I started getting dizzy and sat down on my stool. And uh, the next thing I knew, <laughs> I, you know, I was laying on the pavement. The kids had uh, run to the office and said, oh, Mr. Canans had a heart attack. The ambulance was on the way. And, uh, you know, my uh, blood oxygen was low, and I think it was because that, N95 kind of pooches out, and part of the air that's in the mask, you re-breathe it, uh, but it hasn't had a chance to get out of the mask, so part of the oxygen is uh, not there. Anyway, uh, it wasn't a good experience. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, and I am 82 years old, and everybody says I should retire, but the kids need this so bad I I can't retire. Uh, but this year I met in the classroom. We did technical drawing uh, uh, with the children, and everything was fine. Uh, but I'm very cautious now about this heat, which do, I uh, wasn't quite as cautious as I should have been. Does the, school that, does the school that you work in have air conditioning? Uh, yeah, they do have air conditioning in the classroom. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. the wood shop <laughs> is a different story. It has no air conditioning. Uh, I had fans in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, you know, I, I thought I was tough and could handle it. Uh, I'm used to <laughs> no air conditioning in the shop. But when it gets, you know, 106, 110, uh, it's time to beware. <laughs> it's time to be in a cooler place. I mean, especially if you think about the fact that our body temperature is 98.5 normally. Mm-hmm. So we're not right. supposed to be heating to 106 degrees. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your thoughts. Yes, the other thing, I just want to tell you how much I appreciated the Dick Prennicky story. Oh, thank you. uh, Fabulous, because I had a CD of that alone in the wilderness that I showed to my students, and I had one eighth-grade student that was so inspired. He wanted to build a log cabin for his eighth-grade project, (laughs) and I tried to talk him out of it. But he wouldn't be talked out of it, uh, uh-huh. and we did. We built a little log cabin up there on Ridgewood Ranch. It's still there. It never got a roof on it. <laughs> but, uh, boy, he was really inspired by that. Well, thank uh, you for that feedback. Story. And I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that back. Yeah. A little more information. I ran out and got the book. Oh, good. Anyway, thank you for what you're doing, and the rainwater collection was fabulous. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that Dick Prenica interview... I really enjoyed doing that too. And I'm going to uh, actually rerun that at some point because it's a really, it's a really fascinating interview and a really great book. Um, So now, we have only a couple of minutes left here on Wild Oak Living today, and I promised earlier in the program that I would return to the topic of gratitude and gratefulness. Uh, last two weeks ago, I played a little video by uh, Brother Steindl Rost um, from his website, uh, gratefulness.org, which, by the way, I highly recommend as a resource. And so today, I would like to uh, share some more information from gratefulness.org. Um, it, this is about uh, World Gratitude Day. Um, um, and on World Gratitude Day, which is September 21, uh, there there's going to be the uh, a global online pre- premiere of a new film. And this film, let me just pull up the information here so I can share it with you. Uh, it's um, the story of, ext- uh, let me just tell you from the website, the story of extraordinary people from all walks of life, including Dr. Uh, Stein, David Steindl Rust, founder of the Network for Grateful Living and other luminaries and highlights the many pathways, pathways that guide our ability to live more gratefully. This film was um, directed and produced by uh, the, the same director 
that did the uh, the film Fantastic Fungi, which, by the way, if you have not yet seen Fantastic Fungi, I highly recommend that as well. Um, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be premiering online, and you can find out more information about the film. Um, and uh and also i think get tickets uh for them for the movie premiere and for the online premiere uh and more resources and background about the film and i'm actually going to close my program today by playing the trailer from the film it's a visual trailer of course so some of the visuals might not come across but i think the audio will tell the story and this is just by way of uh making you aware of this film and uh and offering this as a as a resource um, in my own life i I have discovered a few years ago that uh, gratefulness is um, is a bomb and a, and a method and a technique uh, and uh, and a resource for for many life situations and uh, and uh, so I just want to inspire us all to um, look at the concept of gratefulness and see how it fits into our life and how we can use it as a tool to interact in a more um, in a more empathic way with ourselves and with the life and the people around us. So now I'm going to close out today by by playing this trailer and I'll be back for a minute afterwards. Uh, so hope you enjoy this trailer for the movie about gratefulness. We are all born with openness for mystery. What is this tiny blink of an eye that we call life? To be alive in itself is just such a great gift. You have been given a chance in the cosmic lottery. You got a ticket. I'm grateful that I'm just here, just here at all. Ultimately, gratitude is a way of life. We don't know how we got here, we don't know why we're here, and we don't know where we're going. We bless our food, we bless our house, we bless our friendships. The journey is into oneself and into the meaning of being. We are slowly coming to realize we are all human and getting more in touch with our kinship it's about how to become a better human being, a better human being. I see gratitude as a route to a happy life. See, there are things that I've yet to do, and there are mountains I want to move, but I am right here, right now, and it's beautiful. The gratefulness overflow into blessing all around you. That was the trailer for a new film coming out this month called Gratitude Revealed. 
Uh, it was directed by Louis Schwartzman, who used to be an elk native here, and uh, who also di directed Fantastic Fungi, another film I highly recommend. If you want to find out more about Gratitude Revealed, you can go to gratefulness.org and look for information about the film and also about they have some resources there for, for getting uh, access to the online premiere to the film so that you can watch it online if you don't want to go to the theater. Thank you for listening um, to Wild Oak Living this morning. Um, I hope you enjoyed the in, the presentation about rainwater harvesting. Again, the website, if you missed it before, is um, harvestingrainwater.com, where you can find out a lot of free resources about rainwater harvesting and also get copies of the book, Harvesting Rainwater for Drylands by Brad Lancaster. I will be back in two weeks with another edition of Wild Oak Living. I've got two topics in the work, but they haven't been finally confirmed yet, so I'm not going to mention them yet. If you want to get on my mailing list and find out in advance on what's coming up on Wild Oak Living, send me an email to contact at wildoak.org. That's contact at wildoak.org is my email. And uh, please continue to stay tuned to KZYX and support KZYX. If you want to listen to us on podcast, go to kzyx.org where you can find out how to do that. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.